If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Yes, you heard that correctly. It's not the Gospel of John this week, but the Gospel of Luke. We're taking a short pause in our study of John. This week we're going to be looking at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Luke 19. And then next week we'll look at the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. So this morning we will look together at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went down ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning 
that you would make the truth of your word evident to us. That you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. That especially knowing who Jesus is would affect who we are. That we would long to worship Him, to honor Him, and to be with Him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Our text this morning marks the beginning of what is called Passion Week. It's the week of Jesus' suffering. That's what passion means in this context. And as a result, this is the most significant week in all of history. Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close. And He knows it. And so Jesus now changes from concealing who He is to declaring it. As we look at this text this morning, we will focus on the responses of different groups of people as Jesus enters Jerusalem as the King. We will not spend in-depth looking at the fulfillment of prophecy, although we'll mention it. We won't look at each of the statements that Jesus makes in great detail, because what I want us to focus on are three groups of people that respond to the declaration that Jesus is Lord and King. We're going to look this morning first at Jesus' disciples and how they respond. And then second, we'll look at Jesus' opponents and how they respond. And then finally, we'll look at a group that we will call the undecided at the end of our text. And we will see this and the reminders of the responses to Jesus to help us to remember that we too must respond to Jesus. We must respond to the King. And how we respond is the most important thing in our lives. Let's start then by looking at Jesus' disciples and how they respond to Jesus. Now first, Jesus sets the stage for all of this. In order for us to understand what is going on here, we need to see that the foundation is that Jesus is in control. Everything that's happening here is happening at His command, at His Bidding, we might say. And this is important because when we come to this famous Palm Sunday story, we think we know what's happening. We know the events that are going to occur. We know that there's a sharp difference between this Sunday and the Friday to come on which our Jesus will be crucified. But if we are not careful, we will see Jesus through the lens of our experience. As if Jesus were the victim of circumstances here. As if He were compelled to do certain things by the people and the crowds. We might look at this and see that Palm Sunday is the result of what the crowd was thinking and wanted. And when the crowd changed their mind, so did the result. In reality, Jesus is the one causing all of this. All of this is by His design. 
for the completion of His work and for our instruction. And so Jesus is very deliberate at the outset here in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is very deliberate in what he's doing. He's going to Jerusalem and he is leading the way. Mark is helpful here to give us a picture of what Luke is describing. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is spoken of as not only going to Jerusalem, but going ahead of the disciples. There is a separation. He is out front. He is eager to get to Jerusalem. And they are following. And Mark describes them in a very interesting way. He says that they are amazed and afraid. Now we might ask, why is that the case? But what we realize is that as they are traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus is taking this opportunity to tell his disciples what will happen to him. They could not believe it. They didn't want to believe it. They were sure something must be wrong, that somehow they were going to wake up from a dream and something would be different. But Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen so that they will have no doubt when it does occur that Jesus is in control, that He's the one commanding this, that He's not the victim, but rather He's the King. Are you tempted at times to think that what happens to you is an accident? That there's no real meaning to life. Things just happen at random. That no one cares about what happens to you or what's going on. Often that's the way the world wants to represent life, as a series of random events with no permanent meaning. But God's Word speaks differently. God's Word reminds us that Jesus is in control. That Jesus is never surprised. That Jesus' purpose is found in all things. And that is a comfort for you and me. We know that Jesus is in charge. And Luke begins to show us some details of what is going on. And these details provide context that show that Jesus is in complete control. There's a fascinating thing that happens as Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem. He tells two of them to go out and to find a colt, a young donkey. Now, can you imagine their reaction? He says, go out to this village, this small village. It's so small it doesn't even have a name. And you're going to just happen to come upon a colt that's just going to happen to be tied up, and I want you to untie it and bring it to me. I don't know about you, but I would think the disciples might look at Jesus and say, say what? We're supposed to go and like, just take this donkey? Isn't that going to bother the owner of the donkey? But do you notice that Jesus knows every little detail here? This is not random. Even in this detail, he says, the donkey colt will be tied. And Luke emphasizes this for us. Four times he mentions either that it is tied or will need to be untied. It's very specific. And in verse 30, Jesus reminds us that the donkey has never been ridden. And he tells them exactly how to get it. 
These details show that Jesus is in charge of all events and that he knows exactly what's going on. You see, this is far greater than our so-called truth-tellers or prophets today who will often look out into a crowd and say something like, someone out here is, is sad. Someone's sad. And I think they're sad because of their relationships. If there's anyone in here who's sad because of a relationship, I'm talking specifically to you. You know, they are as general as possible so that they hit 80% of the people. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Every little detail is expressed in advance. And Matthew and Mark even tell us that Jesus specifically wants to borrow this animal. He tells the owner, or he tells them to tell the owner, that he will send it back immediately. This is intentional here. Jesus is going to show something by this action. He's going to show something important. Now, notice something else. Jesus has to borrow the donkey. Jesus has no donkey on which to ride as the king into Jerusalem. What humility our Savior has. The creator of all things doesn't own anything. He's humble in every respect that you could imagine. Yet Jesus is showing us who he is. Look with me at verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now Jesus is not going to steal the donkey. He tells them exactly what to do when someone asks. And that's exactly what happens. The disciples are asked, what are you doing? What's going on here? And you could, you could imagine this. If you left the building here after the service and you saw someone getting into your car, you would look at them and you would say, what's going on here? What do you think you're doing? That's my car, not your car. And so that's exactly what's asked. And so the disciples look at them and say exactly what Jesus has said. The Lord has need of it. And the remarkable thing is, that settles the matter. They don't ask another question. And so what's going on here? Now, we can't be sure. Luke doesn't give us enough information. Perhaps this was a password that Jesus had arranged in advance. Perhaps it was a miracle that these words were used by the Holy Spirit for the owners of the donkey to allow them to give it to Jesus. We don't know. But here's the thing. That's not important. Otherwise, Luke would have told us. What you have to see here is, it could have been a miracle, and Luke really doesn't care about that. We are fascinated by miracles. We're fascinated by things that we see, by mysteries. But Luke doesn't want us to probe into that. Luke wants us to hear what Jesus says. What Jesus is doing here, what's important, is Jesus is making a declaration. And his declaration is that he is the Lord. That's the Lord who has need of it. And when they say Lord, it is full of meaning. The word Lord is used to describe God in the Old Testament. 
It's a word filled with power and authority. And so what Jesus is doing here is deliberately revealing himself. Now, we know that this entire scene is a fulfillment of Scripture, specifically Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what we see here is Jesus revealing himself as the Lord, the King, the Messiah. And he does this deliberately to force a response. So what is that response? Well, first, let's look at the disciples and their response. Now, remember that the disciples had heard about what was going to happen. And they'd heard about it, not in a vague way. Mark is very clear. Mark tells us that Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And then after three days, he will rise. Jesus is very specific down to the details of what he would suffer. But they clearly didn't understand. Because right before this incident, they're busy arguing about who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand. Who gets to be the most important in the kingdom. But this incident wakes them up. Now, they would be amazed by the event itself. They could see the fulfillment of Scripture. They would see the symbolism would be obvious to them with Jesus riding on a donkey. And we need to understand this. Because see, to us, a donkey is sort of the least of animals that you might ride on. You know, no child says, I want to go to a birthday party where there's donkey rides. Right? They want pony rides. Or horse rides. And so we might imagine a king coming into the capital city on a gigantic white charger, a Clydesdale. But not Jesus. He's on a donkey. Now, Zechariah tells us that that's humility on his part, but you have to also remember this, that the donkey was the royal mount. It's what David rode on. It's what Solomon rode on. So for a The Jews, to see a donkey being ridden, it's like seeing someone with purple robes. It is a sign of kingship. And so Jesus' disciples respond immediately with agreement that he is the king. Look at verse 35. The first thing they do is they bring the donkey to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. They don't just give Jesus the donkey. No. They treat him like a king. And you know what kings don't do? Kings don't ride bareback. They ride on a saddle. They don't ride directly on the animal. But of course, the disciples don't have a saddle. And so what they do is literally take the cloaks off their backs and lay them on the donkey so that Jesus can ride on them. 
They're showing honor and preference to Jesus. They are agreeing that he is the king. But more than that, there's something hidden, I think, in the translation. In verse 35, it says, they set Jesus on it, that is the donkey. And we think that that means that they just, they gave the donkey to Jesus and Jesus got on the donkey. But that's not what this word means. This word set is not an ordinary word. It's only used once in the entire New Testament. Here. And what it means is, in Greek, is to take someone of authority and importance and to lift them up and mount them on their ride. This is what people do for kings. Not only do kings not ride bareback, they don't struggle to get up on a mount. No, they're assisted by their servants. That's what's happening here. They see that Jesus is the king and they treat him accordingly. This is no ordinary entrance. And they know it. And as Jesus rides in, this is even further confirmed. Look with me at verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, can you imagine this? Jesus' disciples, the multitude here, as Jesus is coming on the road, it's not enough that Jesus needs cloaks to ride on. They lay their coats down so that the donkey doesn't have to step on a regular old road. You know, I think back to the olden days. And I'm not sure if this ever happened, but at least they talk about it as if it happened. How if a, a gentleman was out with a lady and there was a puddle in the street, he would take off his coat and lay it over the puddle so that the lady could walk on the coat and not get her feet wet. Now, now why a gentleman wouldn't pick up the lady and keep his coat clean, I, I don't know. But, but you understand the principle here. That's what's happening. The king is so important that his donkey's feet shouldn't touch the ground. They lay their coats, expensive, important clothing, so that Jesus can enter Jerusalem in honor and glory. And there is more symbolism here. We might think this is just a nice gesture, but there's more going on here. You may remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked king and queen of Israel, and how the Lord removed them from power by having them killed by Jehu, who would replace them as king. And when Jehu became king, the trumpets blared out and the people shouted, Jehu is king! And do you know what they did next? They put him on a donkey and they spread their coats on the road. And Jehu came in to the capital. So anyone looking at this would know that from history. They would know what's being said here. That Jesus' disciples are declaring that he is the king. Now, who is doing this? There's a multitude in verse 37 who rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They quote Psalm 118, the text that we used as our call to worship. It is a declaration about the Messiah, but they change it just slightly. Instead of saying, blessed is the one who comes, they say, blessed is the king who comes. 
They are declaring that Jesus is that Messiah who was promised. That Jesus is that King. Now, we can be confused about what's going on here. If you're like me, you have probably heard a sermon that goes something like this. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's a crowd that praises Him and cheers Him on as King. And then, five days later, they yell, crucify Him. Look at how fickle the crowd is. How easily they change their mind. I don't think that's what's happening here. And I think Luke gives us a clue. Do you see it in verse 37? It's not just a multitude. It's not just a crowd. It's a multitude of Jesus' disciples. They are the ones responding here on Palm Sunday. They are the ones praising the King. Luke gives us this detail so that we would know that they are the ones responding in this way. It's not the general crowd of Jerusalem. We'll see more about them later. So what does that mean? It means if you would follow Jesus, then you must testify that He is the King. Why? Because He is. All of this is happening to point to that truth. You can't have Jesus as a good teacher or a moral guide or even so you can fit in with the culture. No, Jesus can only be Lord and Savior. Well, that doesn't mean that everyone responded that way. If we thought that, we're corrected right away by Luke. Jesus doesn't just have disciples who respond, He has opponents who respond. And in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Matthew tells us that they were indignant about what was going on. That means they were angry for a reason. They were convinced that this was blasphemy. They weren't just upset because Jesus was being honored. They thought this was wrong. They thought Jesus didn't deserve this honor. In other words, they rejected Jesus' claim to be Messiah and King. And we see that in their words to Jesus in verse 39. They want this to stop now. And they not only don't believe in Jesus... They don't want anyone else believing either. They want Jesus to acknowledge that they're right and to put a stop to what his disciples are doing. And their language is very strong. They tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. The world that rejects Jesus is very dogmatic about it. Jesus is a threat to them. Anyone who believes in Jesus is a threat. Why? Because Jesus' claims are exclusive. They're comprehensive. If what Jesus says is true, then they can't escape it. And that's the way of the world here today. We're just starting to see it here in Luke 19. But it's been true throughout all of history. There is a reason why throughout history, in every place, Christians have been persecuted. 
The world will not acknowledge that Jesus is king. And they see anyone who does as a threat. Now, you may see that in your workplace. Or in your neighborhood. Or even in your family. Understand that for what it is. Jesus has declared that he is king and his opponents do not like that. They want to stop that. But this is just the beginning. We know that these same leaders will plot to kill Jesus. Luke tells us that, that they wanted to destroy him. We know that the crowd will cry out, crucify him, and that they will ask that Barabbas the criminal be released instead of innocent Jesus. They understand the claim that Jesus is making, and that is what makes them angry. Luke tells us that the Pharisees cried out. Matthew tells us that the scribes and the chief priests, the Sadducees, rebuked Jesus. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what your disciples are saying? Now let me tell you, there is no such thing as an agnostic. There is something called a cowardly atheist. But no one is able to truly say they do not know. Because Jesus has made his claim clear about who he is. You are either for him or you are against him. You either testify that he is king or you are indignant that he claims it. There is no middle ground. Where do you stand today? That's the most important question of your life. So how does Jesus react to those who reject him? Well, he reacts in two ways. First, he tells them that they can't remake reality in their image. And then second, he responds with compassion and grace. So first, it's obvious that Jesus will not rebuke his disciples. Now, we don't expect Jesus to give in to the Pharisees. But don't let that make you miss the point of his reaction here in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He says, even if I were to silence my disciples, the stones themselves would cry out. What is that? That's stunning. I have to tell you, stones don't talk. So what does this mean here? Well, I think we might be reminded of another incident earlier in Jesus' life. It reminds us of John the Baptist when he was preaching repentance. And he was preaching to people not to trust in themselves and in their upbringing or their nationality. John told the Jewish leaders that God could raise up children from the stone that he could raise up children of Abraham in Matthew chapter 3. What Jesus is saying here is, you don't recognize reality. Even inanimate creation knows more than you do. That's what Jesus is saying. Not only will he not rebuke his disciples, he rebukes his opponents sharply. 
Now, if you have not bowed down to Jesus, know that you will one day. That is reality. Jesus is king. Nothing can change that. But Jesus calls upon you to believe upon him now. Don't resist. Come to the king. Then secondly, we see Jesus' compassion. Never has anyone had such compassion with his enemies. We see this as Jesus enters Jerusalem in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, it's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the Sadducees. It's not just the crowd. No, Jesus knows what is in the hearts of people. And what is in the hearts of people is rebellion and unbelief. And how does Jesus react to that rebellion? How does he react to that unbelief? To the rejection of his claim to be king. He wept. He had visible compassion. Jesus reacts to his opponents not with fear or with concern, but with mercy and grace. He knows that no one can truly oppose him. And he knows that the end of opposing his work, of opposing his salvation, is death and condemnation. And so he tells them about the destruction that is going to come in verses 42 and 44. That destruction will be total. Why? Because they did not acknowledge their need of the king. And so Jesus uses the phrase visitation, the time of your visitation in verse 44. And this is a clear reference to the ultimate judgment that's going to come. And everything that Jesus prophesies comes true. The Roman armies, a generation, but 40 years hence from this, will come and surround Jerusalem and hem them all in and they will destroy the city and cut off all its inhabitants to the corners of the earth and they will destroy this temple. There's nothing left now where the temple was. Do you know what sits on the Temple Mount? A mosque. All that's left is a portion of one wall. Everything Jesus warned came true. And you see, this phrase, time of your visitation, Daniel tells us and Peter tells us, is a reference to that judgment that is to come. And so I ask you, do you hear Jesus' words? There are only two outcomes to your existence. Either believing that Jesus is the Savior, the one whom you need and who has brought forgiveness of sins. Or else he is the judge who gives you what you deserve. You have earned judgment by your sins. All your thoughts, words, and actions. But Jesus brings mercy and grace. When you believe in him, you have life and peace. 
Then briefly, there is a third group who respond to Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. We have seen his disciples who testify, and we have seen his opponents who reject him. Now we see there are those who are undecided who respond to Jesus. And one part of the undecided ignore him. We see this in Jesus' cleansing of the temple in verses 45 and 46. Normally, when we hear this account of the cleansing of the temple, we think about the wicked temple scammers. Our assumption is that what has Jesus so angry is that they are bringing sacrificial animals into the temple and using it as a place of commerce where they can sell them for far more than would ordinarily be the case. They're taking advantage of the pilgrims. You know, they're doing supply and demand. Supply is low, demand is high, and so the prices are high. This is biblical inflation. That's normally what we think. But I don't think that's what Luke wants us to see. Because he doesn't mention that. Do you notice it? He doesn't give us that reason for Jesus' rebuke and anger for those who are in the temple. Now, it may be, it actually is likely that they are overcharging the pilgrims. But again, Luke doesn't mention it. That's not what he wants us to see. What we need to remember is this is the Passover. This is the time of redemption and sacrifice. The great feast in the year for the people of Israel. All of Israel should be looking to the Lord. All of Israel should be thinking about redemption, atonement, their need to have their sins forgiven. And what are they doing? Well, they're doing everyday life. They're shopping. They're selling. They're chatting. That's what they're doing. They're making a living. They don't think about where they are. In the temple. They don't think about when this is occurring at Passover. And they don't think anything about the meaning of life, being right with God. That's what Jesus is rebuking here. He's rebuking them for ignoring him, for acting as if his declaration that he is king doesn't matter. They don't even realize that this is a heart of prayer, uh, a house of prayer. They don't realize that this is a place where they should be communing with God. Worse than that, they don't think it's important to commune with God. Doesn't this describe so much of our world today? Not everyone is hostile or persecuting. Most people just don't care. They don't have time for Jesus. They're focused on football money, vacations, food and clothing. They don't have time for Jesus or for his claims. But that can be a problem even for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Do you live in a way that shows that Jesus is central to your life? Do you seek him daily in God's word? Do you pray for opportunities to share Jesus with others? Does the way you spend your money and your time indicate that Jesus is Lord, that He is your King? 
Today is the perfect day to take stock of this. Finally, we're given a last glimpse of the undecided in verses 47 and 48. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Now notice that Jesus is the one who's seeking. They're not seeking Jesus. Jesus is seeking them. Daily. Praise God that our salvation doesn't depend on us. If we needed to come to our senses and to find God, it would never happen. But because Jesus is compassionate and merciful, He seeks us out and He does this in spite of our efforts to push Him away. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus brings grace. Think about the context here. Jesus is entering the darkest week of his life. And his disciples really don't understand what's happening. His opponents are mocking him and denying him. And most of the rest of the people are just plain old ignoring him. Yet what does Jesus do? He brings grace and mercy. It's an opportunity for sinners like you and me to hear the gospel of grace, to believe and be saved. Do you see the last verse here, verse 48? All the people were hanging on his words. With all of the distractions going on, Jesus engages us with what is truly important. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, John records in John 6 that Jesus told His disciples that His words are life and that no one can come to Him unless it is granted by the Father. And then He asked them if they wanted to go away like everyone else was going away. But Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That is your hope today. It's the words of Jesus. Wonderful words of life. Let's pray.